You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are diving into chapters 16 through 18 today in our survey of the book of Revelation. This is a high-level survey of the major themes and theology and practical wisdom for following Jesus in a culture that is aggressively opposed to the way of Jesus and the way of the Lamb. And so much of this whole book, I believe, is Jesus pulling back the the veil, pulling back the cover and saying, hey, John, uh, here's what I want you to pass on to your friends in these seven churches in Asia Minor. Here's the spiritual reality taking place. And I want you to see things for how they really are because they're not what they seem. I want you to see them for how they really are so that you can remain faithful to me when the heat is on, when the pressure cooker is is cranked up and you feel the weight of culture and the state and even parts of the church that are pressuring you to compromise in your faith and in your faithfulness to Jesus. And just like the friends of John in these seven churches were facing pressure from Rome, they were also facing pressure from Judaism, which was a protected a religious group within Roman culture and society. And so they found themselves uh, without any political power. They had no military power and they had no cultural influence. They had no favor in culture. And Jesus is giving them here uh, some key insight in how to be faithful. And so that's what's going on here. Like I have been doing, I just want to clarify a few comments that I made. I don't have as many clarifying comments as last week, but in uh, a certain part of the message that I preached, which was this morning, I'm recording this Sunday evening here. But uh, this morning when I was uh, preaching this live, I was making some observations and comments on ways that the church has adapted and 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 utilized without even maybe knowing it, how we've utilized a framework for how we evaluate success that doesn't come from the the kingdom of God and the lamb, but comes from Babylon. It comes from the kingdom of the dragon and the beasts. And what I mean by that is that in our Western North American church culture, almost all of the metrics that we use to uh, validate our churches is are, are basically exactly the same as corporate business and leadership guru culture all around us. Our churches are deemed successful in our sort of evangelical Christian culture. Our churches are deemed successful if they attract thousands and thousands of people, if we have multi-million dollar, tens of millions of dollar budget, if our staff teams are huge, 
if our uh, lead pastors and communicators are, are, are powerfully gifted and charismatic speakers, we are deemed successful if we can um, if we can say, hey, we baptized this many people and this many people raised their hand to accept Jesus, we're deemed successful if even some of our pastors are also authors on the side, writing best-selling books, and we're deemed successful if we have major audiences and, and followings on YouTube and social media accounts, and we're deemed successful if the world around us gives us respect. This is, these are the metrics that drive, by and large, that drive decision-making in the church, that drive decision-making on leaderships across the spectrum in churches as to, uh, you know, where they go next and how they lead and the direction they're going. These are the metrics that the average Joe and uh, Janice, I don't know why I just thought of that name, but Joe and Janice, these are the metrics they use to determine whether someone is worth following. And so we have these pastors and leaders that we, that we put on pedestals. We have a celebrity pastor and leadership culture. And our metrics for evaluating many of these people have nothing to do with the character of the Lamb, with the fruit of the Spirit, with... Um, the, these unseen or, or less than um, powerful demonstrations, our, our metrics is uh, power-based. <laughs> it's influence-based. It's all of these things. And we have a bit of a problem in our culture, I think, as Christians and in, in, in our churches. And we, we think more like the world than we do like the lamb as it relates to what is deemed, if you could even use the word success, what is deemed as successful in our churches? What kinds of pastors are deemed successful? Is it the ones who are faithful to Jesus and go unknown? Or is it the ones who draw monster crowds and who are are, are powerful communicators and authors and conference circuit speakers and and all of these things. And uh, we've gotten ourselves into a bit of trouble here. And we've been, I think, uh, I'm including myself in this, we've been seduced by the value system of Babylon and of the beasts and of the dragon and of the great prostitute that we read about in chapter 18. We've been seduced into uh, evaluating our people and ministries through their lens. And I mentioned two leaders and I, here's what I wanted to clarify. I, I didn't mean to point them out and just, just them. I mentioned Ravi Zacharias and John MacArthur. He and his church are embroiled in a bit of a, a thing right now that I feel is actually concerning. Um, but you can look that up for yourself. But it's not just those two, and it's not just one denomination or one kind of subculture of the evangelical world. It's it's people like Bill Hybels um, and Willow and um, 
James McDonald and Harvest and Brian Houston and Hillsong and Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And these were people that we elevated to this meteoric successful status. They could they could raise gazillions of dollars and have these ginormous followings and ginormous people. And we almost, in one way as a church, we said, hey, uh, the ends justify the means. We'll, we'll, we will we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to character issues in their life that are less than godly. We'll turn a blind eye to some of their behaviors and how they treat other people in an ungodly way. That stuff, we'll just kind of ignore that because we see all this quote unquote fruit in their ministries. And this is something I believe that Jesus wants to bring some correction and conviction to in my own life, in our church here in Niagara Falls, Ontario, um, in Canada, our churches across this country and across the United States. And so I'm not meaning to single, you know, one or two people out or disparage them. I'm meaning for us to have a sober and humble conversation about um, how we are so naturally adept at using a value system that actually doesn't come from the kingdom. And so that's just what I wanted to expand on. I'm not gonna say any more. I have nothing to say after this message. So um, I invite you to join with me, join us as we dive in. Jesus, we pray uh, for your blessing and uh, just your revelation as we engage in your word here. Father, I pray um, that you would bring conviction and correction and teaching through your Holy Spirit to everyone under the sound of my voice who's listening to this with me. Jesus, we want to submit ourselves to you and to your leadership in greater measures today. Amen. We're going to be introduced to the seven bowls of God's wrath, and that's going to kind of complete these sequences of God's judgment that we've seen in the seven seals, the seven trumpets. There were seven thunders, but we weren't told what they were. And now we have these seven bowls. And chapter 16 is going to present those. Chapter 17, just for your overview, chapter 17 is a, a, a more detailed explanation of the sixth and seventh bowl. It's kind of like, hey, let's pause, let's unpack this a little further. In chapter 18, we are introduced to the fall of Babylon. And remember, Babylon uh, in Revelation is not uh, referencing the literal city of Babylon that fell hundreds of years before Jesus. Babylon is symbolic for all of the uh, systematic and structured opposition to the way of God on the earth. Babylon is symbolic and figurative for all of those empires and rulers and authorities and, and places of structure that oppose the principles of the kingdom of God, that oppose the advancement of the kingdom of God in the Lamb. And so that's sort of a bit of the overview. But back to 15, because we have to kind of understand this. In 15, at the beginning, the saints 
we're introduced to a, a picture. And again, um, what our temptation is in Revelation, and especially when we get into these, is to try and uh, reduce these visions to some sort of logical explanation. Some sort of like, let's break this down and just make it simple. The reason that Jesus is revealing these things the way he is, is precisely to bypass your intellect and hit you in the heart. It's not that your intellect doesn't matter, but the function of um, apocalyptic literature. Remember, I've said this before, the, the two great purposes of apocalyptic literature are to reveal the unseen reality taking place in the present. So what's happening in the spiritual realm even right now while we're worship, worshiping? One of the purposes of apocalyptic literature is to pull back the curtain and reveal this unseen reality of what's taking place in spiritual places in the present. The second function of apocalyptic literature, there's more than two, but the second one I wanna talk about is to reveal the unseen reality of the future in light of what we're experiencing in the present. And so we've talked about this so many times, but you could say of this whole book of Revelation, Jesus is saying to John, John, things aren't always what they seem. You may see one thing in the natural in front of you, but understand that there are things going on in the spiritual realm that you may not be aware of that God is maybe working in your life and around you in ways that you're not perceiving. And so the book of Revelation is this uncovering, this unveiling, that's what apocalypse means. It means pulling back the curtain. And what we see here as we are heading into 15 is we're introduced to this scene. And remember, Revelation is not written chronologically. Revelation jumps around all over the place. The seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are not uh, written in a chronological order. They overlap and overlay with each other. They're actually different perspectives of the same thing, just coming back again and again to it. And um, so Revelation is not written chronologically. We're given a vision into what's happening. And the question that we need to ask is not what happens next. It's what does John see next? And what John is seeing in 15 here is this picture of these saints standing on a sea of glass mixed with fire, praising God. That's, again, the sea in Revelation and in much of scripture and Hebrew culture was symbolic. The sea was a symbol for evil and chaos and the powers of darkness that oppose God and his reign. The sea was symbolic for the realm, the unseen realm of the dragon of Satan and his forces. We're shown here now these followers of the lamb, this 144,000, which is a composite of the faithful of Israel and the Gentiles, the, the sum total, the totality of those who are following the Lamb standing on the sea and it's mixed with fire. Why does John add that extra detail here? The fire can be a symbol of the Red Sea potentially, 
which God parted supernaturally, uh, displaying his, his power over the powers that opposed him. The fire that is mixed in the sea could also be a picture of God's judgment, the holiness of God. That, that God has now entered into this realm of dysfunction and destruction, this realm of evil and chaos, and he's beginning to bring his holiness, his presence to bear in this realm. And these followers of the lamb are standing over there. And then it says, the testimony of the tent of witness was opened. I'm not gonna spend a long time on this, but this is very specific language that John is giving us. It's referencing back to the tent of witness, which is found in the tabernacle of Moses that's in the story of Exodus. And the testimony of the tent of witness was the combination of the law of God given to Moses, placed in the ark of the presence of God. So Moses brought in the, the law of God. This is how I'm calling you to live and places it in the ark of the covenant, the place of God's presence and says, I'm calling you to live according, according to the heart of God. And so that's this testimony is the law of God coming into effect in a leadership position over this nation. Of course, we know in the New Testament that in Jesus, the law is fulfilled, but I wanna just highlight something. The law was not obliterated. It was fulfilled in Jesus. And actually, Paul said that the law is not the problem. Romans 8, he said, it's not the law, that's, it's me. <laughs> it's my dysfunction, it's my humanity. I'm the issue, the law is simply pointing out to me where I am, am falling short of the heart of God for my life. And we, in our, in our circles, we've kind of twisted things a little bit. We think that when Jesus was healing on the Sabbath and doing things that he was undermining the law, he wasn't undermining the Mosaic law, he was undermining the oral traditions of the Pharisees because they added to the law. They added all of these extra conditions that had to be followed that were not part of the law, but were these extraneous kind of weighty things, like really weird and specific, like you've got to, this is not a real one, it's just an example. You've got to brush your teeth on the left side first and then the right side. You have to wash your hands a certain way and you have to do all these things. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not what the law says. You're adding to it so that you can kind of elevate yourself in religious piety. And so we have to understand that this witness that's being opened now is the witness of the law of God, the, the very character and nature of God that is now coming to the earth. And the nature of God is the thing that induces judgment on the world. As I mentioned last time, God is not some vindictive, evil, cruel, maniacal kind of, you know, um, leader who just is having uh, temper tantrums all the time and who's trying to kind of beat out of us, you know, his anger and his, 
dysfunction. That's not the heart of God. The, what, what John is seeing here is that the very nature of God is now coming into contact with everything that opposes it. And just by that kind of nature, things are gonna start to move. God's gonna bring to justice the things that are twisted and distorted and fall outside of his character and his grace. And we're gonna see that beginning to happen. In this, we see this picture that judgment comes on those who determined to reject Jesus and his way. Remember last week, if you were here, I said something that might've been a little bit shocking to some of you, that there will be no person in hell who's there because Jesus sent him there and told him to go there. The only people that will be found in torment and in hell will be those who have determined to live apart from God, who have determined to reject Jesus in their life. By their own decision, they will be there. In the Gospels, we learn that God didn't even create hell for humans. It was for Satan and his angels. It wasn't even initially made for us. What we're about to see here is this principle of God's that uh, of, of free will, and our ability to choose how we'll live, but God's saying how you live comes with repercussions and consequences. And so he lays out this uh, picture of this tabernacle, this tent of witness as being the standard for our life. These golden bowls that were introduced to in 15.7, are connected, most people believe, with the golden bowls that are filled with incense, the prayers of the saints. Back in chapter eight and in chapter five, these bowls of wrath are actually God's response to prayer for justice. These are not God filling up these things with every evil and harmful and vindictive thing he can think of. These golden bowls are filled with the prayers of God's people for justice on the earth. For God to make right what the enemy has distorted and twisted and destroyed. That's what these bowls are filled with. They're not filled with this angry, vengeful God who's just out to cut you down at the knees. These are filled with the prayers of the saints that were offered for God to move and to act and to work in the world. And how many times have you and I in our life prayed uh, desperately to God, God, would you bring justice to this or that, to this thing that was done to me, this harm that was done to me, or this thing that's going on on the earth that is, that is gross and is, it violates every good thing about you. Would you bring it to justice? And part of God bringing those things to justice is pouring out these bowls that are called these bowls of wrath. This is, these are the, the contents of God's holiness and his character on the earth. So these bowls are connected to the bowls that are filled with the prayers of the saints and these are God's answers to the prayers of the saints through history to bring justice to the earth. And so just a couple Final thoughts of about 15 as we set the stage. Number one, what can we learn? What are some major themes or theology from 15? You can write these down. Number one, God is aware 
of what we're experiencing. He sees. What did Jesus say as he's talking to each of the seven churches? I know what you're going through. I can see it. I'm not oblivious to it. Number one, God's aware. Number two, God is not just aware, he hears our prayer. Here's this major theme. Again, we're coming back to it in Revelation that prayer matters. Even if you don't feel like anything's happening, even if you're not seeing it happen, one of the things we have to understand here is there is a big space sometimes in between when we pray and when God acts. Sometimes there can be a large gap and in that gap we get discouraged and disheartened and we feel like God isn't hearing us and answering us and and part of what Jesus is kind of revealing to John here is that I'm aware and I hear your prayer. I'm active and I hear. Number three, what we are confronted with here is how we handle that in-between, between our prayer and the answer to it. Often what John is seeing here and what Revelation is talking about, often in that in-between, we experience suffering and pain, rejection, persecution, discouragement. We lose heart in the in-between. God is reminding us, number four, big principle here. Not only does, is he aware, not only does he hear, not only is he calling us to be persistent and faithful in the in-between, number four, we're assured that he will answer our prayers. He will. Now, we can sort out the issue of timing and him answering in, in the way we want or are picturing But what we're hearing from John, what we're seeing, and what Jesus is revealing to John and his friends who are struggling under the heavy hand of Rome, who are struggling to live out their life following Jesus, what we're told is that God will answer your prayer. He will one day. Keep praying, keep pressing in, he hears you, he's aware. And although you may experience hardship and suffering and trial, don't give up, don't lose heart. That's part of the scene that is being set for us here. So this scene of the saint standing on the sea mixed with fire gives us assurance. You can write this down. It gives us assurance that even when we experience suffering, persecution, and even what may appear like defeat, even when we experience what we would categorize as defeat because of our allegiance to the Lamb and his way of living, God will bring justice and vindication one day and in his own way. That's the scene that sets up these next chapters. I'm gonna, again, this is an overview, a survey. I'm not gonna talk specifically about every bowl here in this context. I wanna give you some higher level thoughts. So we move into chapter 16 and we see now these sequences of judgments that John has already seen. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read chapter 16. So remember, we said all along, if you are here for every week, you'll have read through the whole book of Revelation. I'm gonna invite Rochelle to come. 
and she's gonna read uh, chapter 16 for us. So you can open to that. Why don't you stand with us as we read 16 now together. All right. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and, the cursed, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud noise came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Awesome, you can have a seat. Just a few thoughts here about that. Spencer, are we recording? Good. That's really awkward for those who are gonna be listening on this podcast. How are you everyone? I've never seen or met. All right. 
Chapter 16, just a couple of things. Again, this is not chronological, just like the gospels are four accounts looking at the life of Jesus from four different perspectives. These bowls are now another window, another view of the outworking of the judgment of God. These bowls are now explained in the greatest detail of all of the sets of seven. We're now moving into the greatest detail. In the seals, we hear the number one third often in the seals. And then in the trumpets, we hear the number one quarter. Now we're moving into a totality. We're moving into like, this is gonna happen all over the earth. The whole world is now going to experience the reality of what's being talked about. And we see in 16 that the focus of this, the focus of these bowls of wrath is not on the followers of the lamb, but on those who are actively rejecting and resisting the lamb, the way of God. This wrath now comes to those who are being stubborn and obstinate and refusing to humble themselves and acknowledge God in their life. And what God is saying again is, look, you're free to do that. But that's going to violate my character and my nature in such a way that you're gonna begin to experience the fallout of living for yourself of living with yourself as your God and savior, of living for your own wants and needs. We're now seeing the global impact of humanity opposed to the lamb. So these previous chapters we've been in, 12, 13, 14, they've revealed the rise of the dragon, Satan, the beast of the sea, political power, empire that is organized against God, the beast of the earth, the false prophet, religious systems that are, that are united to empires and governments that are subservient to them, that then actually direct people away from the worship of God into the worship of the dragon. We've seen this reality kind of coming into view here that, that what you see is not everything that's happening and that we're involved in a cosmic battle and warfare, it's raging all around us. We don't get a choice of whether we're in it or not. It's happening all around us. And so the question is whose attention are you directing your life toward? Who are you worshiping? Whose image are you walking in? Are you walking in the nature, the mark, of the lamb, the nature of the lamb? Are you walking in the lifestyle and behavior and attitudes and, and conduct of the lamb? Or is your life marked by the character of the beast? That's the symbolism behind these marks. Who's marking your life? Who's leading your life? And so we've been uh, exposed to this reality that things aren't always what they seem. And there's something animating there's something animating the world to oppose God. It's not just people we're looking at, right? What does Paul say? Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's not against a certain leader or ruler. Our battle is against the spiritual forces that are animating governments of the world to reject the way of Jesus. So in chapter 16, we begin to see God's response. 
This is God's response now to those who determine to walk against him. A couple just important ideas here. We're introduced in the first, uh, the first bowl to those who are marked by the beast. Again, uh, you can reference back messages to, to get filled in on that. But, but God is saying those people that set about to reject me in their life, that are marked by the character of the dragon, whose perspective and actions and thoughts and speech and behavior looks like the dragon, will experience pain, boils and sores. And we're not to, we're not to expect that we're going to see this physically manifesting on people that have boils and sores, but this is a, a way of Jesus saying to John, there, there's a cost, there's anguish and pain that comes with aligning your life with the values, behavior, and lifestyle of the beast. It's not just fun. It's not just living your best life. When you choose to reject the way of the lamb, a cost will have to be paid. And many people who look to themselves for salvation, who who try and find salvation within themselves, who look to systems and structures in our culture and world, many people who turn away from God will experience the reality that what is broken can never bring you life. What is dead can never resurrect you. And so often we turn to these things thinking that in them we'll find a moment of peace or our, our desires will be satisfied, our life will have meaning, but we see here in the end that the bottom falls out on the kingdom of darkness. It implodes on itself and anguish will follow those who are determined to walk against God. The second thing in these judgments, these bulls, we see that God's judgment specifically here, and you'll see this all all in view here, God's judgment, a huge part of it is aimed at the world's economic system. What we're told in chapter 16 and then expanded on in 17 and 18 is that God will carry out judgment against the economic systems of the world which the dragon and his agents use to deceive humanity. All of the trust we put in our wealth all of the trust we put in financial security, all of the ways with which we seek to get ahead, all of the ways that money and power and wealth are used globally, God will bring judgment and justice on those things. We're told that with that economic system collapsing, the kingdom of the beast will be plunged into darkness. I have a few questions. I want you to just jot some of these down even as it relates to this. How dependent are you, am I, are we as followers of Jesus on the economic systems and structures of our world? That's a, I, that's a tough question. It's one I'm asking myself. How dependent are you on the economic systems of our world? Question two, 
how have we together compromised with this system? How have we compromised the values of the kingdom? What have we done in order to get ahead? Have you or have I ever believed this statement, the end justifies the means? How are you leading your business? Are you leading it with total integrity before the government? If you're not, you're not actually in the system of the king. This is asking us some very hard questions. What in our life have we compromised to come into alignment with the economic system of our world, with, with the ability to have wealth and security and structure and predictability? What have we sold? What have we compromised in order to have control over our finances? This is a, a question that's been haunting me. We don't even see it. But part of our, I think, part of what's under the surface of this so subversive, of this economic system of the dragon, it, it satisfies our need to exercise control and predictability over our life. If I can set myself up in such a way that I have all of the I's dotted, all of the T's crossed, that I don't have to worry financially, that I'm never in need, that my children and their grandchildren and others are taken care of, which is a godly thing, but what have we sacrificed in order to attain control of our life and predictability? What have we lost in not being willing to trust in the provision of God because we've taken care of ourselves? These are good questions. Number three, how do we examine our values and attitude toward money and material success? Number four, do we depend on aspects of the financial and material world that are actually places of idolatry in our lives? Number five, what are we willing to give and trade for economic security? Last one, what are we willing to do in order to satisfy our cravings and desires right now? To live life on our own terms. So we, we, we are swimming in this sea, this messaging, this sea that tells us that the goal of our life is to live it on our own terms and not be dependent on anyone or anything. Well, that's, that's the water we're swimming in. It's the oxygen we're breathing. You, the goal of your life is to not be dependent on anyone or anything. Do you know, in our Western culture, we are the first generation of people that pay money we pay money to abdicate ourselves from the responsibility of taking care of the elderly. We're the first culture in history that pays an exorbitant amount to other places to take care of our aging parents so we don't have to bear the burden of it. 
What are we selling and trading in order to have our best life and the life we want? This is where we need to understand. John is saying, you have to have wisdom here because so much of my life and maybe yours, and I know the church has bought into this system, this economic system of the world, bigger, better, equals blessed by God. Bigger churches, bigger budgets, more staff, more influence, more sort of cultural fame equals God's blessing, and it couldn't be further from the truth. God's not impressed by big things, and he's not impressed by my financial security or yours. He's impressed by people who give their attention, their devotion to the lamb all of the days of their life who aren't planning to just coast and experience the easy life, but people who are faithful with the resources that God has given you. God has given some of you much, which is a blessing, which is awesome. The question under here that is coming out from Jesus is what is in the root of your heart as it relates to these economic and financial realities of our world? At the end of this chapter, we're introduced to this thing, I just want to address it quickly. Armageddon, this is like a, you can read whole books on where it is and what's gonna happen there. I just want to break this down for you. This word Armageddon is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Har Megadon. It means mountain of Megiddo. That's what Armageddon means. Except there was no mountain of Megiddo. That's not an actual place. Megiddo was a plain area maybe a little hill here. It's like, it's like when people call the escarpment the mountain in Hamilton. Like, are you gonna go up the mountain? When Rochelle first moved here from Alberta, I said, hey, we're gonna go up the mountain. And she said, where is it? Like, I don't see it. Well, we're going up Centennial Parkway. We're going up the mountain. And uh, so maybe Megiddo has like an escarpment, but it's not a real mountain. There's no actual mountain there. But it was a place that was important in Israel's history because it was a place of decisive battle. It was a place where God confronted the powers that were opposing Israel and won some decisive victories. What is nearby that plain of Megiddo is Mount Carmel. This too is a place of deep significance where God defeated the gods, specifically in that contest between Elijah and Baal, where God demonstrates his power over the gods, over Baal. And so I think what John is saying here is not to look on the map for a specific location, but to recognize to recognize in these great spiritual battles that are coming, that God will be victorious, that he has all power and authority over the rulers and principalities, authorities and powers of the unseen realm. I wanna leave you with another principle from chapter 16. In the beginning, we're introduced again to the language of the mark or the nature of the beast. If you read through these judgments and you read through chapter 17 and you read through chapter 18, you'll see one, there's more, but one I wanna highlight for you, common response to God's, to God's way in people's lives. Common response to these judgments of God. 
those who are following the way of the dragon develop a, a nature and character of blame shifting. Notice how when God comes to confront them out of his mercy and his goodness to say, hey, what you're doing is producing death in your life. I wanna bring you freedom. What you're doing is destroying you. You don't even know it from the inside out. You're coming unraveled. Hey, I'm gonna confront this. What happens is the people begin to be hardened even further, just like Pharaoh and Exodus. The result of God confronting them in their life and saying, hey, there's a better way. There's a better way to live, a better way to experience the fullness of life and salvation and all of these things. When God comes to confront that through these judgments, through these bulls, the result is that they become hardened in their heart and they become experts at blame shifting. This is one of the marks of the kingdom of the dragon. The citizens of Babylon, all right, so, uh, Humanity opposed to God, they're not moved to repentance when God confronts them. They're not moved to humility when they experience the fallout of their decisions. They become blame shifters. They accuse and deflect and rage. They blame God. Why did you do this to me? How dare you do this to me? How dare I experience this? How dare I walk through this? God, who do you think you are as though we somehow stand above God and understand all that he does? So a mark of the kingdom of the dragon is to be a blame shifter that blames God for everything in your life. Everything bad that's happened. God, why did you let that happen? It's your fault that it happened. How could a good God do these kinds of things? The second thing they do is they blame government or big business or technology structures and systems of the past. It's colonialism's fault. It's this, it's that, it's everything but me. This is the, this is the way you recognize the way of the beast is it's everyone else's fault, never mine. It's never my decisions that got me into this mess. It's that person that made me do it. It's this system that I'm in that's rigged against me. It's everybody else's fault. It's never my own. And a mark of the kingdom of the dragon is I will never take responsibility for my own actions. I will never humble myself and say, God, I am not God. You are, I don't understand what's going on, but I yield myself to you. I trust you. That's the way of the lamb. The way of the dragon is to say, how dare you, God? How dare these things happen around me? It's everybody else's fault. I'm caught up in something I've no control over and it's impacting and influencing me and I don't have the ability to get out of it. A mark of the the way of the dragon is to believe that everyone else needs to change, not you. It's my wife's fault, not Rochelle's specifically. I don't have anything in mind, just so everybody knows. But it's my wife's fault, my spouse's fault. It's my kid's fault, they just get under my skin. <laughs> I've said that maybe once or twice this week. <laughs> It's their fault. The mark of the dragon is to blame everyone else and insist that they be the ones that change. And don't we see this actually taking on a pervasive 
powerful influence today. The, the, the cry of our cultures, the cry happening on social media is everybody else is screwing up things for me. Everybody else is screwing up. Everybody else needs to change. You need to conform to what I need you to be. This is the mark of the dragon, not the mark of the lamb. The mark of the lamb is I humble myself and accept responsibility and accept that I'm broken and that change and that uh, transformation must begin in my own heart. I'm grieved over the ways that I've opposed God in my life. I'm grieved for how I've grieved him. I'm broken because of the dysfunction that I display in my marriage, in my parenting, in my workplace, and in my finances and all these things. I'm grieved. And so I humble myself and say, God, I accept your work in my life, even if it's hard for me. The dragon in the nature and character of the dragon and the response to God's work in their life. They feel a need, I want you to hear this, to reject any complicity. So not only do I reject you, I don't literally, but reject you because you oppose me, I reject anyone that stands with you, right? We see this happening. I don't just reject Mike, I don't Mike, but I don't reject you, or I don't just reject you, I reject everyone associated with Mike, everybody who is friends with Mike and agrees with Mike, they're all lumped into this. And there's this need to reject anyone that is causing brokenness and to locate the root cause of brokenness outside of myself. This is the way of the beast. Brokenness is everything happening to me, not the reality of my own heart, my own life. Chapter 17, some overviews. Um, your butts are probably falling asleep, so why don't you stand up with me, and we're gonna read this, and I'm gonna make just a couple of comments about this. And we'll be on our way shortly. Chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Okay, some really weird stuff is coming up. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of the, whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was uh, arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels. Again, this is economic wealth and privilege she's representing. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. This is not only specifically sexual immorality that's being talked about, it's actually walking away from the heart of God. It's grieving him. On her forehead was written the name, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood 
of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and the 10 horns that carried her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. That's not very helpful, I will just say as an explanation. But we'll get there. It's a parody of Jesus. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been witnessed, written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Super not helpful again. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. That is a picture of the totality of the kingdoms of the earth, of empires and the people who are opposing the kingdom of God, the power structures of the world that oppose the kingdom of God. As for the beast that was and is not, it is, uh, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. They have, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. What is he saying? That the kingdom of the beast will always implode on itself. And we've seen that in empire after empire after empire. The fruit of the kingdom of the beast always devours its own. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. You can have a seat for just a few more minutes. I'm gonna leave Spencer to read 18 next week and catch up on that. A few thoughts about this chapter. Who is the prostitute, the great one who is seated on many waters? That description of her being seated on many waters is actually a description of her authority over the nations of the earth. Everywhere in Revelation where somebody is described to be seated is a place where they are described to have authority over those they're seated over. So this woman is actually exercising, she's not, it's not a literal woman we're talking about, she's exercising authority over the nations of the earth. The sexual immorality we talked about is unfaithfulness to God. The language we're introduced to in scripture is that God is our, and Jesus is our bridegroom. That we are betrothed to God, that we are in a marriage, a union with God. And so this picture of sexual immorality is actually a picture of people being unfaithful to their lover, to the one who loves them being unfaithful to 
the one that they are supposed to be in covenant relationship with. This is a rejection of God's way in our life. This prostitute that we're introduced here to is the one who's intoxicating the world. And what John is coming back to, what Jesus is saying here, is that she's seducing the world through wealth, luxury, prestige, influence, the ability to have influence. It's only in the last couple of years we have categories called influencers. She seduces the world with these ideas of luxury, wealth, prestige, influence, power, sensuality, comfort, and security. These are the the things that she trades in. I think partly she's given the description of a prostitute because as a definition, a prostitute would be someone that you go to to meet your desires, to gain fulfillment on your own terms. A prostitute would be somebody that you go to to seek provision for a need, sexual or otherwise in this context, to seek provision for a need and desire outside of God. The picture here is that I take care of myself I provide for myself, I meet all of my needs, I don't need you, God. That's the picture that's being painted. I wanna just invite Liz to come if she's around. I think part of this picture is this flip side of the prostitute. We may experience momentary pleasure We may feel like a need that's being met is being met, but it's never actually being fully satisfied. I think part of what's under here is this reality that there's always an exchange that we must give to be the ones who are the source and supply of our own needs, to see our culture as meeting our needs for identity and influence, to see Um, money as filling this void. Maybe for some of you, your bank account is the the tool you use to, to mitigate fear and anxiety of the future. Not for all of you, but maybe for some of you, your, your bank account and the, the, the padding that's in there, the security that's in there is your tool for addressing fear and control in your life but there's always an exchange with the prostitute. I don't wanna keep saying that too many times, but there's always an exchange. There's always a price that has to be paid. And Jesus is pulling the curtain back for John and saying, John, so much of this church, so much of these seven churches are compromising in different areas of their life. Their whole life looks more like the kingdom of the beast than the kingdom of God. And I think a fair question that I I wanna ask myself, I, I am and I want you to ask yourself, is if God was removed from my life, would anything change? 
would anything change? A great question for our churches is if God was removed from our church, would anything change? If you look at the book of Acts, everything would have changed. If you look at our contemporary Western culture, almost nothing would change because we have elevated. I've been a part of this. I'm, I'm, I've been raised in this system, not intentionally, but everything about our Western church culture is built on metrics of the dragon. We need big bank accounts and big budgets and big buildings and big staff and lots of influence and great social media presence. We need to be these things. Then we'll be successful. Then we'll have, we'll have demonstrated to ourselves that we have value and worth and influence. The church has been co-opted into the, the economic system of the dragon and is not living often with dependence on the Lamb, releasing the resources of God back into the kingdom of God. Again, like we talked about last week, what will happen, because it's gonna happen when the government pulls tax stuff from the church and says either you sign off on these ethics that you agree with them, or we're gonna revoke your charitable status. What's gonna happen in your life? This is a real question. What's gonna happen in your life when you are posed with the decision, I'm no longer going to receive a benefit from the government for giving to the church, am I still gonna give? See, this is what's happened in the life of the church. We've, we've moved away from God being the provider and source and initiator of our generosity and our giving into this protective environment that we've been blessed to have, but a protective environment of the government saying, I'll give you a kickback for what you give. And I think much of the church across our culture, not just this one, but across is gonna struggle deeply because our, our giving has been rooted in faithfulness to Jesus. It's been rooted in what we get back on our tax return. And these are where we're confronted with the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. And this prostitute is subversively seducing us. We've bought into it so much as a culture and a church. Why is it that we say typically the wealthiest and biggest churches are the most successful? By whose metric are we measuring that? Or pastors that have the greatest social media influence or the largest congregations to preach to? I think it's probably more a demonstration of our the ditch of narcissism that we're falling into by evaluating success in the kingdom by the metrics of the world. Since when have we been able to assign success or failure based on a metric like how much our church budget is or how popular we are on social media or how much you like or don't like my preaching or our worship culture? Bigger is not always better. Bigger is not always more blessed. We've seen in the last few years, some of the, the biggest named pastors that we've known in our generation fall. You wanna talk about people like Ravi Zacharias and others? 
John MacArthur right now and others. Like, we can't put our trust in what we see externally. We can't put our trust in bank accounts or money or bigness of things. We need to come back to faithfulness, to the way of the Lamb, to be led by Him, to release our lives into His care and not buy in to these seducing realities of this great prostitute. Our desire for prestige and luxury. In chapter 18, I want to close with this. Spencer can read this next week, but I just have a thought here. I think the, the central message of chapter 18 is this mighty angel who comes and he says, come out of her. Come out of her. If you don't, destruction is waiting. If you don't wake up, and I think part of the reason why this angel is described as being big and powerful and carrying a loud voice is because he needs to get our attention again. If you don't wake up, if you don't wake up to how you're being compromised by the systems of the dragon and of this world, you're gonna get wrapped up in the judgment of God because your life is opposing him. And so this mighty angel comes and he says, come out of her for goodness sake. I have this thought, this whole series. How much of my life would I be willing to allow God to upend? And he's doing some weird things in me that are not normal for me. Like yesterday, I pulled into McDonald's. That's confession number one. Rochelle, I haven't told you about that yet. <laughs> For an iced coffee. Wasn't a, it wasn't a double cheeseburger this time. I pulled into McDonald's and coming across the parking lot was a gentleman who was clearly disabled I'm not sure what was going on and he was struggling to make his way across and I started bawling like literally bawling in the drive-through lane saying God the kingdom of God is for him would he experience your goodness and your blessing? The kingdom is not for the proud and the mighty and the rich and the affluent and the big. The kingdom is not for the strong who think that they are the answer to every need in their life. The kingdom is for the broken and the hurting, for the ones who can't fix their problems, for the ones who can't snap their fingers and make things okay. God is doing something in me that's even foreign for me because I'm not generally an empathetic person, just ask my family. But he's teaching me that real kingdom power and authority is not located in what I have in my bank account 
or how many people come here on a Sunday morning or what our church budget is or how many staff we have or, or how great our worship is or isn't. It's not located in our influence or in our security financially. The, the kingdom of God is located in the humble and broken. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are the broken heart, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What would you be willing to allow God to upend in your life in order to see his kingdom come in, in real power, in real authority, to shift the location from yourself and what you can do to provide for yourself to him? Why don't you stand with me? This statement of the angel come out of her. It challenges our, our desire to treat revelation like a book of predictions to figure out. And it challenges us to shift from trying to predict to preparing. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for Jesus to come? Are you prepared for his kingdom to come? Would you recognize it if it came even right now? Are you ready? We need to shift out of trying to predict what's gonna happen next into a heart of preparedness for the return of Jesus. This loud and mighty uh, voice of this mighty angel was gaining the attention of those who might be in danger, those who are struggling with being seduced by the power and the wealth and the influence of Babylon, those who are falling under the spell of culture and the world around us. Worldliness is pervasive in the church as well as outside the church. And our pervasive worldliness makes God's standards and godly decision-making seem strange and weird. But the question is what kind of strange, weird things in your life would you be willing to do to humble yourself and allow Jesus to take his place as ruler and Lord? What worldly standards would you be willing to violate in order to be led by him? I wanna read you this last quote as we leave. It could be said that the wrath of God is the love of God that moves astringently, rigorously, unrelentingly against anything in our being that is inconsistent with God's will for our wholeness in his image. As long as we cling to our unlikeness of God, the love of God will be a constant torment. The places where you and I feel this struggle and this pulling, this tormenting of soul are often the places where God is trying to bring you into the wholeness of his whole being. But we are resisting being formed into the likeness of the image of God. 
And that's the very place Jesus is inviting you today to say, look, would you, would you let me work in this area? Would you let me work so that you be, can become like me in this area of your life? I want you just to close your eyes and I want you just to ask these questions prayerfully, you, just quietly. And I'm just gonna ask Holy Spirit, you're the one that brings conviction. You're the one that brings truth. I, I, it's not me. And so I just ask Holy Spirit in this moment that you would apprehend our thoughts. We bring every thought under the authority of Jesus Christ right now. And I just ask for each one of us, Holy Spirit, that you would highlight one or two ways that our lives are inconsistent with God's will for our wholeness as he defines it. Where are we walking against the grain of the purposes of God's wholeness for our life? And what are we clinging to today, God, that is unlike you? What are we clinging to today? Father, that is unlike you, that is unlike your nature and your character. What are we clinging to today, Jesus, that doesn't look like you, that doesn't act like you and feel like you? What behaviors and thoughts and attitudes and actions, what things are we clinging to that don't look like you? We ask Holy Spirit that you would just give us revelation even right now of anything in our life that stands in, in contrast to the wholeness and fullness of life that the love of God wants to pour out into us. Father, I pray for each one here. I pray a blessing over them, that they would be blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear this week, that you would give them wisdom in their workplace, in their businesses, wisdom in their parenting, wisdom in their marriages and in their relationships, wisdom in uh, decisions for work and school and for the future. Father, I pray that you would just pour out a spirit of revelation and wisdom on them to know the way of the Lamb, to see it and recognize it in real time, in real situations in their life. Father, would you lead us toward yourself as a church and as families, that we would be able to walk in this world, but not be of it and not be characterized by it. Teach us to release our lives into your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.